Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please take your Bibles and open it to Isaiah chapter 61. Isaiah 61. We're going to look at the whole chapter. Isaiah 61. You guys are there. Let me read the whole chapter and then we'll pray. The Spirit of the Lord God is on me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of our God's vengeance, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who mourn in Zion. To give them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, festive oil instead of mourning, and splendid clothes instead of despair. And they will be called righteous trees planted by the Lord Yahweh to glorify him. They will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will restore the former devastations. They will renew the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers will stand and feed your flocks. And foreigners will be your plowmen and vine dressers. But you will be called Yahweh's priests. They will speak of you as ministers of our God. You will eat the wealth of the nations and you will boast in their riches. In, your, in the place of your shame, you will have a double portion. In place of disgrace, they will rejoice over their share. So they will possess double in their land and eternal joy will be theirs. For the Lord loves justice. I hate robbery and injustice. I will faithfully reward my people and make a permanent covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their posterity among the peoples. All who see them will recognize that they are a people the Lord has blessed. I rejoice greatly in the Lord. I exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation and wrap me in a robe of righteousness as a groom wears a turban and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth produces its growth and as a garden enables what is sown to spring up, so the Lord Yahweh, the Lord God, will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all the nations. This is the word of the Lord. May the word of Christ dwell richly among us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray with our Bibles open before us now that you would continue to proclaim to us the year of your favor. Proclaim to us the good news for the poor, healing for the brokenhearted, comfort for the mourning. Proclaim your vengeance even. We pray, Lord, that you would build us up as righteous trees, oaks, that are meditating on your word day and night planted by streams of water that are strong and righteous and joyful. So Lord, open our eyes to your word, to your glory. Open our hearts to you. We pray for those who are watching live or watching all together as a church family this Sunday morning that you would bless us as we watch together. It's not the same as being in the same room, but it's, it is good to watch at the same time with others. For those who are watching this video later, we pray that your word would, would penetrate their souls in whatever ways you mean for it. Lord, this is not an accident that we're studying this text this Sunday with these people hearing it. So help us, Lord, speak to us. Give us strength. Draw us near to you. 
and make us sensitive to your Holy Spirit. Shape us as a church, we pray, and we pray for non-Christians that they too would have eyes to see and ears to hear what your Spirit is saying to them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of my favorite lines from the Avengers Endgame movie is when Thor confesses his failure to his mom. I don't know if you remember that scene. He confesses his failure to his mom, and his mom says to him, and I, when the first time I, I watched it, I was like, I gotta write this down or try to memorize it, and I didn't my first time, but she says, everyone fails at who they're supposed to be. The measure of a person, of a hero, is how well they succeed in being who they are. Everyone fails at who they're supposed to be, but the measure of a hero, of a person, is how well they succeed at being who they are. Now that could be taken all kinds of wrong ways, but I like that quote. It really struck me. We should seek to succeed in being who we actually are and not merely aiming at who we're supposed to be. Growing up, I was supposed to be an NBA basketball player for the Los Angeles Lakers. Why are you laughing? (laughs) And then when I realized that wasn't happening, then I was supposed to be the team doctor, the sports trainer, the, 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 the team doctor for the Los Angeles Lakers taking Gary Vitti's spot. That's what I was supposed to do. But the measure of a person is succeeding at being who they are. So who are you? What is your actual purpose? Not what, you're, what people think your, your purpose is supposed to be. What is your actual purpose? Are you failing at who you're supposed to be? Are you failing at who you actually are? Everyone wants to live with purpose and meaning, but sometimes we feel lost because we don't know what our purpose is. We don't know who we are. We don't know what the meaning of our lives is. We don't know what our purpose is. And so we don't know if we're failing or not. So it's not just the feeling of failure, it's really the feeling of lostness, confusion. And for those of us who are Christian, we have a Bible, we have God speaking to us and telling us who we are. So we have a better sense of who we are. So maybe our our situation as Christians is not so much confusion as, as much as it might be guilt at failing to live up to who we are, of failing to be who we're supposed to be. And so we might be tempted to redefine what a Christian's supposed to be. Who am I supposed to be? Well, I'm supposed to be like Christ. I'm supposed to be the family of God, the temple of the Holy Spirit, a slave of Jesus Christ, a disciple who makes disciples. And when I feel guilty, I might want to just redefine the goalpost, move the goalpost just a little bit to, to not feel as bad about how I'm not living up to who I'm supposed to be, as if our self-definition is authoritative and true. There is another way besides just walking around with guilt and trying to ignore it or just being confused and lost. There is another way of living with hope and meaning and purpose. The way is not hopeless failure. The way is hope-filled joy. And Isaiah 61 guides us to live with this hope-filled joy. So as we just read Isaiah 61, let me summarize here what the main goal I think of this passage is, I think the main goal is respond. Here's what God wants you to get this morning or the main message here from the text. Respond to God's hope for you. Respond to God's hope for you so that you joyfully fulfill your life purpose. Respond to God's hope for you so that you joyfully fulfill your life purpose. That's what we want to do. We want to know who we are. We want to know what the meaning of our lives is. We want to live with purpose. We want to fulfill that joyfully, not, not um, under compulsion and drudgingly, but joyfully we want to fulfill our purpose. So we need to respond to God's hope. Okay, one more time. Respond to God's hope 
so that you fulfill, so that you joyfully fulfill your life's purpose. And there are three steps to, to, to getting this goal into our souls. So let's just go with the first thing to do here, which is hear the proclamation of hope. We, get, we begin with hearing the proclamation of hope, verses 1 through 3. Look with me at your Bible. Hear the proclamation of hope. Verse 1 says, The Spirit of the Lord Yahweh is on me, Isaiah says, because Yahweh has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. So here, Isaiah is a prophet who lived 700 plus years, maybe 750 years before Jesus, 750 BC, somewhere around there. 722 is when the northern kingdom is exiled and Isaiah is alive during that time. So 700 plus years before Jesus, Isaiah is here writing this prophecy, prophesying about the future. And he's not prophesying about himself, I think, when he talks about this. Isaiah 40 through 66 is all these promises of the restoration of Israel and their great salvific hope that God would save his nation, Israel. And so here he's prophesying, really, um, he's talking about an anointed one. It says, the spirit of the Lord Yahweh is on me because Yahweh has anointed me. Now, if you're an anointed one, what's another word for an anointed one? Anyone? An anointed one is called a... Have you guys heard of a christening before? You know where the word Christ comes from? An anointed one is a Messiah or a Christ. So that's an anointed, that's all Messiah means, an anointed one. That's all Christ means is an anointed one. So here, here, um, here it's speaking, verse one, the spirit of the Lord God is on me because the Lord has anointed me. So this is an anointed one who's anointed by God himself. Now, in the Old Testament, there are three offices that were typically anointed. So the anointed ones were prophets, priests, and kings. Prophets, priests, and kings were anointed ones. And here, this anointed one is anointed not with just oil. That's what they were anointed with, oil. But they were, this one was anointed with the Spirit of the Lord. So God's Holy Spirit is, um, is on this anointed one. Now, why did God anoint this Messiah? This anointed one. Why did he anoint the Messiah here? Uh, what was the purpose? Do you guys see the purpose in the rest of verses 1 through 3? There are several purposes. I have uh, seven here. What's that? What are some of them? To bring good news. To bring good news. Okay, so yeah, that's the first one. And then you're going to go uh, verse after verse here. There are seven reasons or seven purposes. What's his purpose? What's the Messiah's purpose? We're talking about our purpose this morning. But before we get our purpose, let's understand the Messiah's purpose. His first purpose here in verse one is to bring the gospel good news to the poor. The poor are typically not only poor because of their own brokenness and sin, but oftentimes it's also because of the system around them. Now, I'm not denying personal responsibility here, but usually the poor is oppressed by a system and they're left out by people. Even today, I was reading a, um, a quote by J.I. Packer, who passed away on Friday, talking about uh, middle-class Christianity and how middle-class Christianity, how we seek to perpetuate it. Nothing wrong with being middle-class in and of itself, but when you see uh, the poor or the homeless or even the way the churches minister, that there are churches that typically, they just don't feel like they fit in. They're not particularly loved. They feel left out in the way of the cultural pattern of a church or of Christianity. And so the poor are typically marginalized, forgotten, oppressed. And so here the Messiah is coming to proclaim gospel to the poor, to those who are oppressed, those who are left out those who are on the out or feel like they're on the out. 
So that's one, to proclaim the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. Those who are broken in their lives, heartbroken over loss, bereavement, failure, discouragement, despair, depression. The Messiah has come to heal them. To also proclaim, third, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners. Now, this could refer to slaves because he's going to talk about, he's going to refer to the year of Jubilee here where slaves are set free. And this is not chattel slavery of American slavery. In in the Bible times, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's a different kind of slavery um, set up where it's it's, uh, economic and financial and you can buy your way out of slavery often. And so, um, it's, so it's not based on skin color or ethnicity at this point. But the point here is that the year of Jubilee, the captives would be set free. So here's a, the, um, the Messiah coming to say, it's the year of Jubilee, everyone's free. Maybe it's that, I, I think that's part of it. But I think also behind this idea is the fact that Israel is in Babylon, or they're going to be on Babylon. Here, Isaiah is prophesying of the future. They're gonna be exiled because of their sin. They, they're gonna break the Israelite covenant through Moses, and they're gonna be in exile. They're going to be in captivity. And Isaiah is saying that the Messiah is going to come to say, hey, captives, you're free. The exile is over. You guys are no longer displaced by God from his land or from his people or his laws and his rule. You are now restored to that. Fourthly, moving on in verse two now, it's to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Proclaim Yahweh's favor. And this would be the year of Jubilee most likely. And so here you have, again, the idea, I think this is in Leviticus 25, an explanation of the year of Jubilee, um, but an explanation. And here it's the year of the Lord's, the Lord's um, favor, God's blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord look on you with favor and give you peace. This is speaking about the favor of God. And it's the year, it's the period, it's the season of God's favor on his people, no longer under the curse. But it's not just the year of the Lord's favor that he's proclaiming. He's also preaching the day of our God's vengeance. So salvation and blessing comes with the curse and um, judgment, right? By God judging his enemies and judging sin, he brings salvation to his people. He, by cursing those who are cursed, he's able to bless those whom he chooses to bless, and this is proclaimed by the Messiah. Moving on, to comfort all who mourn and to provide for those who mourn in Zion. So he's caring about those who mourn, he's comforting those who are grieving and mourning, and he's providing for their needs in Zion. This is God's holy city, not just the holy city um, of the current day, but the eschatological final hope of the new Jerusalem, the new Zion, the holy city. He will provide comfort for them. And then this is, very familiar phrases to us, but it's just beautiful to think about God's love here. God wants to, through the Messiah, to get, the Messiah is going to give them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. Now, when do you put ashes in your head in the Old Testament? You put ashes on your head when you're mourning, when you're repentant, when you're grieving. And instead of having ashes on your head mourning, God is going to give a crown of beauty instead of ashes festive oil instead of mourning, and splendid clothes instead of despair. Usually they would um, dress in sackcloth, right? Um, Uncomfortable clothing that they'd put on to to express their destitution, their mourning, their grief, their pain. And so here he will give them splendid clothes instead of despair. This is all what what, what, um, this... Holy One is going to proclaim. And what's the result here? And they will be called 
trees they will be called righteous trees planted by the Lord. And here's the last purpose, the final purpose of it all. He's going to do this and all these people that are going to be restored and comforted and freed and believing this good news, all of them will become righteous trees planted by the Lord. And here's the purpose of it all. So that this people that's saved will what? Verse three, the end of verse three, they will what? The purpose of all of it is to glorify him. The Messiah will save his people. He'll proclaim liberty and truth and gospel to his people so that at the end of the day, they will be called righteous trees. They will be righteous trees. They'll be um, growing and flourishing and bearing fruit. And in that, God will be glorified. That's why the Messiah does what he does. This, this idea of righteous trees, I even put it in my prayer. Um, it's like Psalm 1, right? The, the blessed man who, who was planted beside streams of water. Um, what else did God plant? If, if he's in righteous trees here, he's planting um, individuals who are meditating on, on God's word day and, night, day and night. What else did God plant? Do you guys know? In Isaiah 5, he planted Israel as his vineyard. And they're a, a cursed vineyard that he's going to throw out because of their curse. But now he's going to plant them as righteous trees. But what's the very first thing God planted when he created the, the world? What did God make for Adam and Eve to live in? A garden, right? And the garden is called the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden. And Adam and Eve's role was to be fruitful, multiply, and to fill the earth with image bearers and to extend, really, the place of God's garden, his planting, around the earth. And so there's, a, there's even a mixture here of God's place, the Garden of Eden, and God's people now being called righteous trees. Like We're not trees, but in one sense, we're image bearers. But here, God is going to make his people righteous trees that he's planting for his glory. This is good news. And so the main point here, at least the first point, is to hear the gospel proclamation. Hear the proclamation of hope that though there is pain and brokenness and sin, there will be a final restored hope. So I ask you, are you discouraged this morning? Christ has good news for you to the poor. Are you brokenhearted? Christ has healing for you. Are you enslaved, in, are you enslaved and in bondage to someone? to something, to some desire, to some part of you? Do you feel conflicted within? Are you, do you feel enslaved or in bondage or trapped by even some spiritual being, demonic oppression even? Christ has liberty and freedom for you. Are you mourning? Christ has comfort and provision for you. Do you long for a time of perfect peace, a year of the Lord's favor, 10 years of the Lord's favor, an eternity of the Lord's favor? Do you long for a time of perfect peace? Christ has a time of favor to come for your, eternal incre- your eternally increasing enjoyment. Do you long to glorify God in all you do? Are you frustrated that you don't glorify God in all that you say and do, whether you eat or drink? Christ will make you an oak of righteousness and you will live for his glory. Now, Jesus came to do this. Look at Luke 4. We're going to spend a little bit of time here in Luke 4. Um, let's look at Jesus here because Jesus actually takes up these very words in Luke chapter 4. So turn your Bible there. Luke 4, 14. It says this. Then Jesus returned to Gal- Galilee in the power of the Spirit and news about him spread throughout the entire vicinity. He was teaching in their synagogues, being praised by everyone. He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. As usual, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day, like he did every week when he was growing up, and stood up to read this time. Now he's reading. He's the teacher. 
the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and unfolding the, unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So he read the same passage we read, right? He then rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. He began by saying to them, today, as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. Wow. Imagine that Sunday. You're here every Sunday. Someone grows up in our church. They leave our church. They come back and they're going to preach here at our church on a Sunday. We're here every Sunday. Like, yeah, we've seen this kid grow up. He comes back and he reads a passage from Revelation about the second coming. And he says, today, right now, in me, this is being fulfilled. We probably throw him out, right? <laughs> and say, you're crazy. But here, Jesus, he's reading a 700, you know, 750-year-old prophecy. Uh, and then he stands up and he says, a typical Sabbath. Yeah, see this passage here? Today, right now, as you're hearing it, you're hearing that, someone, that the, some, some Messiah is going to come and proclaim liberty. Right now, you're hearing it. You're seeing it being fulfilled right now in your face. It's amazing that Christ did that. Now, notice here, Jesus is claiming he's the anointed one. He's going to be the one to fulfill this. And yet at the same time, notice where he stops in the reading. Look at verse 19 again. To proclaim of the year of the Lord's favor. He stops there and he doesn't finish the sentence. He's supposed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of God's vengeance. But he stops there. That's weird. Why did he stop in the middle of a sentence? Why not also proclaim the year of God, the day of God's vengeance? Why just the year of the Lord's favor? That's strange that Jesus stopped there and people find significance in that. And I think there is some significance to that. So much so that everyone, because everyone was expecting, if you read Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, you're reading the prophets and you're thinking about this future hope of Israel. You're thinking when the Messiah comes, he's bringing all of it. I mean, imagine, imagine this. If Christ came at his second coming, okay? You guys are all hoping for the second coming, right? Imagine Christ came at his second coming and you found out it was like an, it's a three-part coming. And his second coming isn't the fullness. But he comes back and he tells us, hey, there's another part. It's, I'm doing this still in phases. You'd be like, wait, what? I'm reading Revelation. Like, no, this is it. And I do think it is it because Christ is the final revelation. But that's what they're expecting in the Old Testament. When they saw like the, the end time, the new Jerusalem, they were thinking, oh, he's going to come. And then 2,000 years later or 3,000 years later, he's going to have a second coming. And then he's going to bring the fullness of it. They weren't thinking that. They're just reading Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and they're thinking, when Christ comes, when the Messiah comes, the kingdom's going to come, and it's going to be great. So that's what they're expecting, the, the year of the Lord's favor and the day of God's vengeance at the same time. Bring it all. Judge God's enemies. Restore his people. It's going to be great for us if we're his people, right? It's going to be bad for those who aren't his people. But Jesus stops in the middle of a sentence. And this confuses the disciples, Judas was certainly disillusioned to the point of not believing. When Jesus said he was going to die on a cross, people, you know, his disciples, Peter tried to stop him. But you know who else was confused? John the Baptist. Go back to, go to Matthew 11. In Matthew 11, John the Baptist, and you could, you don't have to, if you don't want to, we're going to look at verses one through six. You could turn there and just listen. John the Baptist was confused. John the Baptist, he was the one who prepared the way for the Lord. He said that the Lord was coming. He's the one who pointed and said, this man is the Messiah, pointing straight at Jesus. You know, as I'm looking at someone here, just literally pointing at someone saying, this guy right here, everyone look, this guy right here, he's the Messiah. Like he had, he's the one who had that job. What a great job, right? To be the one who's going to point out to the world, this is the guy. Um, that's John's 
mission. And so John fulfilled that mission. And then John found himself in prison. And he's thinking, what am I doing in prison? The Messiah is out there, like the king. And the kingdom's supposed to be here. Like, I pointed to him, like, several months ago. Like, where is he? Why am I in prison under King Herod? And so he sends his disciples, it says in verse, uh, Matthew, uh, Matthew 11, verse two, 1 and 2 and 3, are you the one to come, or should we expect someone else? What am I doing here? Are you, I mean, I pointed to you. I said, you're the guy, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Are you the guy or not? Because, you know, what's, what's going on? Are we supposed to wait for somebody else? Did I, did I miss it? And what's Jesus' response in 11.4? Jesus replied to them, go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, and the, those with leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor are told the good news. There's Isaiah 61. And blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. So John was confused. Because Jesus came, but Jesus is showing us that even as he's here to proclaim the Lord's favor... In his first coming, he wasn't here to bring final judgment that he will bring in his second coming. And why? Why, why was Jesus not proclaiming vengeance yet? Jo See, John was a little confused. He didn't fully understand the gospel yet. He knew that Jesus was the gospel and Jesus is the man. But he didn't fully understand the gospel yet because Jesus was unfolding it in his life. If you're a child listening, children, I want you to listen here. I have a question for you, children. Do you know the gospel do you know, have you heard it before? Because the whole point of this first point is to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hear the good news proclaimed to you. Do you know the gospel? Could you explain the gospel in your own words? And here's another question, children. Do you know the gospel better than John the Baptist? John actually was confused here. He did not understand that Jesus' first coming did not have the final judgment because Jesus had to get judged first. Do you understand the gospel that Jesus had to die for sinners first? and rise from the dead before he could bring in the final salvation and judgment to come? If you're not a Christian, or children here even listening, let me explain to you the gospel very briefly. And John the Baptist was hearing it, but it wasn't fully unfolded to him yet. And Isaiah 61 is pointing to it, but it's not fully unfolded there yet either. God made us in his image to love and enjoy him, but we sinned against God, and because we are sinners and rebels, we deserve God's judgment and damnation and curse. But God sent his son Jesus into the world to be the king, to bring the kingdom. But this king had to live the life we should have lived. But because we sinned, somebody has to die and pay the penalty for our sins. We have to actually. But the king comes and he takes off his kingly robe and he dies on the cross for sinners. He takes the curse and the damnation, even though he never sinned. The king becomes the one cast out of the kingdom. So that sinners like you and I if we would repent and believe in the king who died for us, he rose on the third day, the king who died for us and rose for us. If you repent from your sins and trust in him, you will be forgiven and you'll be part of his kingdom. You'll be part of his kingdom people and you will rule and reign with him when he returns. That's the gospel. So if you're not a Christian, I plead with you to repent from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ, the king who died for sinners and rose from the dead to bring salvation and who will bring judgment. And the reason he didn't bring judgment initially is because he had to bring that judgment or receive that judgment on himself first to save his people before the final judgment or else we would all burn, right? So if you're not a Christian, turn from your sin and turn from your own goals and your own purpose in life and turn to Jesus Christ for forgiveness, for restoration, for hope, for the kingdom, to be one of his, uh, his, the king's people living for the kingdom purpose. Christian, 
We have an opportunity to hear the gospel preached every time we, we read the Bible and connect it to Jesus. We get to hear the gospel preached every time we hear the, um, the Bible preached in our church gatherings. And so let's keep hearing the gospel. Hear the, hear the proclamation of hope. And for the church as a whole, the point of the spear of our mission, the very tip of the spear of our mission, is gospelizing. We do more than gospelizing. We do discipling. I say discipling would be the head of the spear. But the very tip of the spear in our mission into the world is gospelizing, proclaiming the hope of the gospel. Praise God that God is not silent, but he speaks to reveal his hope to us. So let's continue here. Respond to God's restoration of hope so that you, you joyfully fulfill your calling. So first, hear the proclamation of hope. Point number two, experience the restoration of hope. Experience the restoration of hope. Verses four through nine. Verses four through nine, experience the restoration of hope. Look at verse four. It says in verse four, go back to Isaiah 61. They will rebuild. So as the, as the Messiah saves these people, they will what? They will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will restore the former devastations. They will renew the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. So they're gonna, if, if, you're, if you're home and your city is torn down and burned and, um, and destroyed, then when God restores Israel to their land, to Jerusalem, they will rebuild, right? You will build your city, you'll rebuild your buildings, you'll rebuild the society, you'll put back the law, you'll, you'll restore order, and you'll restore the society. That, that's what will happen when the Lord plants his righteous trees and restores them. They will rebuild their home and society and land. Look at verse 5 and 6. Verse 5 says, Strangers will stand and feed your flocks when they're restored, when you're restored, and foreigners will be your plowmen and vine dressers, Israel. But you, Israel, will be called the Lord's priests. They will speak of you as ministers of our God, and you will eat the wealth of the nations, and you will boast in their riches. So they will, um, they will be benef- these priests will be benefiting off of the wealth of the nations. That's what priests did, okay? If you look at uh, verse 5, that, that strangers will feed their flocks, foreigners, that's the Gentiles, non-Jews, will be their plowmen and vine dressers. And then verse 6, the end of verse 6, they'll eat the wealth of the nations and they'll boast in their riches. So all the Gentiles, the non-ethnic Jews, what are they going to do? The, the non-national Jews, they are the non-national Israelites. They are going to give wealth to the priests. They're going to shepherd the priests' flocks. They are going to um, be the plowmen and vine dressers and gardeners for the priests. What does that mean? Does that mean that Gentiles are going to be second-class citizens? No, that's not what it means here. It sounds like it, though, right? It certainly sounds like it. But um, if you understand the priesthood in the Old Testament... The Levitical priests, the Aaronic priests, the sons of Aaron were priests, and the Levites, you could read about this in Numbers 18, they were, they were the ones who, um, they didn't get land, and they didn't, have, they didn't have crops. What did they get? They processed the offerings of the rest of the 11 tribes when they would make offerings to the Lord in the tabernacle and temple. When they would do that, the priests would live off of that. So the priests live off of the money and the wealth and the crops and the provisions of the rest of the 11 tribes. As the priest between the rest of Israel and God, these people had an inheritance and land. The inheritance for the people was for the uh, the priest was God Himself, and they lived off of the wealth of the rest of Israel. And so, if that's how the Levitical priests are to the eleven, the other eleven tribes, then if you get all twelve tribes as the priesthood, what are they the priest to? Not to each other. If 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 the national Israel is the priesthood, then who are they mediating God to? To the rest of the nations. 
So just the way that the Levitical priest fed off of the other 11 tribes, the image here is that the whole national priesthood would feed off of the wealth of the nations. The point here is that Israel will be restored to, the pl to their place as a holy nation and as a royal priesthood or as a kingdom of priests. And that's quoted, that's from Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6, that when God made the covenant with Israel, the Israelic covenant through Moses, he said, if you keep my commands and obey my words, I will make you a kingdom of priests. Not just the Aaronic priests. I will make you, the whole nation, a kingdom of priests. This is actually before the establishment of the Aaronic priesthood. The Aaronic priesthood of, Le of Levi was a picture of Israel's priesthood to the world, not vice versa. The big priesthood is national Israel to the world. That's the main priesthood that, God, that God's plan was about. And the Aaronic priesthood was a picture and a microcosm of that bigger reality. So notice here in Isaiah 61 verse 6, it's not that he's restoring the Aaronic priesthood. It's that he is going to make the whole nation a nation of priests. They'll all be priests together. And this is to fulfill God's purpose and plan. So what is God's plan? What's God's purpose? God's plan and God's purpose is to bless the whole world. This is what priests do. Priests take the blessing of God and they mediate it to the world. That's what Aaron did. He'd make sacrifices and he'd pray to God for the people. He would teach the people and, and, and apply the sacrifices to the people. So the Aaronic priesthood was in between the rest of the people and God mediating the blessing of God. And so Israel as a nation was to be that royal priesthood, that kingdom of priests who is mediating the blessing of God to a cursed world because we're all under the curse of sin, right? And God promised through Abraham, through your offspring, the nations, every family of the earth will be blessed. How does that blessing get there? That's God, if God's big plan is to bless his people from every tribe, nation, tongue, and language, if that's God's big plan, how is he gonna do it? Through his royal priesthood. They were gonna take the blessing and they're gonna bring it to them. And that was Israel's job. That was Adam's job actually before Israel. That was Adam's job in the garden, was to be a priest, a king priest. And now Israel had that job. And Israel failed in that job. And Isaiah is now prophesying, even though Israel failed and would be exiled, the Messiah would come and restore Israel, and they would become that priesthood who would attract the nations. So Isaiah sees this as fulfilling the Exodus 19 design and plan. So what about the Gentiles then? You're talking about Israel, 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 PJ. Where, where do the Gentiles fit in? Are we just supposed to stay second-class citizen? Is Peter wrong in 1 Peter 2.9 to take the kingdom of priests and apply it to the church in 1 Peter 2.9? Does he go too far in doing that? Or do you think Peter's right in doing that? Is Peter moving beyond Moses' intention and Isaiah's intention and more importantly, God's intention? I would say no. Isaiah gives us some clues that the Gentiles are actually included in the people of Israel. Uh, and, and he's going between old, the old covenant thing is the Gentiles are distinct from Israel. But in the new Israelic covenant, we actually see how they mesh. And, and Isaiah points to it. In Isaiah 61, 6, it seems like it's just Israel. But if you read, let's say, Isaiah 56, oh, let's say Isaiah 66, 18 to 21. In Isaiah 66, 18 to 21, God is going to take Israel and he's going to save the Gentiles. He's going to show his glory through Israel. And it says that he'll take some of those Gentiles and make them priests. So there, so some Gentiles will become priests and Levites. But it says some. It's like, I don't like the word some there, even though it's the Bible, so I gotta love the Bible. So I'm like, okay, well, what does it mean some? In Isaiah 56, um, Isaiah says, Isaiah 56, three, let me just read that for you. 
Isaiah 56, 3 says, No foreigner who has joined himself to Yahweh should say, The Lord will exclude me from his people. Isaiah 56, verse 6, And the foreigners, that's Gentiles, who join themselves to Yahweh to minister to him, to love the name of Yahweh, and to become his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it, and who hold firmly to my covenant. This is what God's saying. I will bring them to my holy mountain and let them rejoice in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar. And you've heard this before. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. This is the declaration of the Lord Yahweh, who gathers the dispersed of Israel. I will gather them. I will gather to them still others besides those already gathered. Here, Isaiah is merging. He's, he's blurring the line between Gentiles and Israelites. And, and what, what, keeps them, what, what makes them one people? What keep, what's the blur? Where's that, where's that blurry part? Where's the overlap? Those who believe in Yahweh. Those who are part of his covenant people. And so I would say that, that we are included. Bethany Baptist Church members, if you're a Christian and you believe in Jesus Christ, you're included in this new covenant, this new Israelite covenant. And so um, this final priesthood that, that, um, that Isaiah is prophesying is it only going to be in the future? Because it says in, in Revelation 20 that in the end, we will be priests reigning with him forever. So that's in the, in, the new, in the kingdom to come and the eternal state, we will reign with him forever. But are we priests now or only in the future? How many of you say only in the future? Out of you three who are here. How many of you say uh, right now? Okay. I wonder what you guys are saying at home. The, the people here all said right now. Yeah, it is, it is a future reality, but it's also a present inaugurated reality. It's incomplete, but it's here. You know, if you think about this, the priests are mediating the blessing of God to the, to the cursed nations, right? To the cursed Gentiles. The book of Acts, D.A. Carson said this, this Isaiah 61, 6, or this whole idea of priesthood, this is a summary of the church's mission. Now just think about it. The book of Acts it's a, restore, it's a restored Israel. You have converted Jews. What are they doing? In Acts 1 and 2, they get converted. They're following Jesus. They have the Holy Spirit descend on them. And then what do they do in the rest of the book of Acts? They're gospelizing, discipling, establishing churches, and spreading the gospel throughout the Roman Empire. What are they doing? They're being priests. They are mediating the blessing of God in their gospelizing, discipling, establishing of churches, and uh, spreading the gospel throughout the Roman Empire through churches. That's what they do. Let's read on, go back, go back to Isaiah 61. Let's finish this idea before we get to a little bit more application. Isaiah um, 61 in terms of experience. So if you're gonna experience this restoration hope, you experience it by being a priest. You experience it by, by participating in this, in this Gentile mission or this gospel mission, really. What else happens in those who are experiencing this restoration hope? Verse seven, not only will they be priests, in your place of shame, you will have a double portion. In your place of disgrace, they will rejoice over their share, so they will possess double in their land, and eternal joy will be theirs. So they'll receive a double portion like the firstborn. Israel was God's firstborn, according to Exodus 4, 22 and 23, and that's what we will be. The people of God are his firstborn people altogether. And the point is, they, your shame will be removed, and it says in verse 7, you'll possess double in the land, and eternal joy, that's what we're about here, eternal joy will be theirs. Now, why should, they, why should they confidently hope in this? If you've been exiled and you've been discouraged, why should, if you're down in your Christian life, why should you be confident that you have this hope and eternal joy will be yours? He gives two reasons in the rest of verses eight and nine. Look at verse eight. Why will God fulfill his promise to, make, to restore us as his priests? 
For I, Yahweh, love justice, and I hate robbery and injustice. So that's the first reason. The first reason why is because God is righteous. He hates robbery. He hates oppression. He hates injustice. And it's wrong for those who deny and reject God to oppress those who are God's people made to rule and reign. And God hates injustice. He loves righteousness. So that is why God will restore his people and judge those who are against him. There's a second reason, though. Look at verses 8 and 9. It's because God is faithful to his covenant. So first, because of God's righteousness. The second reason here why God will fulfill this is because of his faithfulness. I will faithfully reward my people and make a permanent covenant with them. So God is faithful to his promise to Abraham that through Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed, not cursed. There will still be some curse, but some from all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's an eternal, everlasting covenant that's going to be expressed in the new covenant through Jesus Christ. And God is going to be faithful to complete it and to fulfill it. So even if you're going through difficulty and sin and brokenness in your life, God will fulfill that covenant. He's faithful to it. And the result of that is in verse eight and, or verse nine, their descendants will be known among the nations and their posterity among the peoples. And here it is. All those who see them will recognize that they are the people that Yahweh has what? Blessed. That's the name of the game. The cursed people are not really cursed after all. In the end, they will be blessed. You will be blessed. You are blessed. God's face is shining on you. He does have his favor on you in Christ. And you can trust that God will give that full, final, restorative hope when Christ returns. You will reign with him in the kingdom to come. It's not yet fully fulfilled now, but you are blessed. And you get to mediate that blessing to others now. You get to experience the restoration covenant in your own being blessed and in you sharing that blessing to other people. Now, as of yesterday in Los Angeles, we have lost 4,084 people, neighbors, to the COVID-19 virus. 2,188 hospitalizations right now, as of yesterday. One day, hopefully, maybe, someday, someone's going to discover a cure for the COVID-19 virus. Lord willing. That's, what, that's part of my prayer. And then there will be people who manufacture that, that cure. There will be people who, who produce it, who replicate it, who spread it, and administer it. And if, when that day comes, all of us whose lives have been drastically shaped by this pandemic, our lives will be changed, right? Once that, if that cure comes and when it comes, we won't need to be socially distancing eventually. We won't, be able to, we won't need protocols for our gathering. We'll be able to hang out at each other's houses again. We'll be able to engage and have our neighbors over for dinner and share the gospel with them and, and share life and share Jesus with our neighbors in the community. People who are not working will be able to work and all the protocols of work will change as well. If and when that day comes, we will all be thankful for this blessing. If that cure comes, people will mediate this blessing, this cure to the society, and we will be thankful for it. We get, we, and we, we are, we'll be thankful for it because, I mean, none of us here are working on the cure. It will be mediated to us and to our society from others. And here's the thing with what we're doing as the priests. We mediate a greater blessing than the COVID-19 cure, right? We can't wait for that day when that cure comes because that's going to change our society for the better in some ways, at least from this burden that we have. And yet there's a greater burden of sin and the curse. And we get to experience mediating God's blessing as his priests right now too. 
We get to experience this restoration hope as priests when you gospelize, when you disciple, when you baptize people, when you take a member into the church, when we establish our church, when we establish other churches and spread the gospel through church planting and church revitalizing. If we send out other members who transfer to other churches, if we send out pastors, if we send out missionaries, as we send out money, as we send out teams, we are experiencing, participating in the royal priesthood, the restorative hope. When you pray and live for other members gospelizing non-Christian friends, when you pray for current and future missionaries, when you live for people to build up and encourage one another out of sin and for fresh faith and repentance with joy, when you pray and serve other churches and church plants, as we invest in future pastors and leaders, as we raise up godly women to teach and and serve and disciple and strengthen churches and societies, as we observe the Lord's Supper and remember the communion, we participate in We experience restorative hope. So God saves us by Christ the high priest and brings the blessing to the world and we get to experience that blessing and mediate that blessing to others. So we respond to God's restoration, hope, so that we can joyfully fulfill our calling. And so first we hear the proclamation that hope is coming, restoration hope is coming. We experience that restoration hope in part now as the priest and we mediate that restoration hope. And lastly, Respond to the restoration hope, okay? So hear the proclamation of hope, experience the restoration hope, and then respond to the restoration hope. And really, um, what is the response? Look at verse 10 and 11, last two verses. I rejoice greatly in the Lord. I exult in my God. So there's the response. Now, who's speaking here? Maybe it's the Messiah. I think it's actually Zion who's speaking here. Maybe it's the prophet Isaiah, but the application is the same either way. Okay, I think it's the Messiah speaking here. I mean, not the Messiah. I think it's Zion because here it says, he has clothed me with garments of salvation. And the Messiah is the one doing it, not really receiving it. So it seems to me that's more speaking as the corporate Israel, Zion, the, the holy city, the people as a whole, or maybe even Isaiah. But either way, the application is the same for us. What is our response to Restoration Hope? If we're to copy um, the people here in verse 10. Rejoice greatly in the Lord and exult in who? In my God, exalt in our God. That's the application. The, the writer here rejoices in God, or the, the person here speaking, he rejoices in God, he exalts in God, and he boasts in God. And so what are we supposed to do? If we're to respond to restoration hope as priests who hear this hope and mediate this hope and experience this hope ourselves, we ought to rejoice greatly in God and exult in God. Now there's two reasons why we should rejoice greatly and exult greatly. So we could change point three to say rejoice greatly in restoration hope, if you like. But I like the word respond first because we want to get it from the text. Rejoice greatly in the restoration hope. Why? Why does he rejoice greatly in this hope? Look at verse 10. Why do they do that? For, so you get two reasons, one in verse 10 and one in verse 11. In verse 10, you have the first reason for rejoicing greatly. For he has clothed me with garments of salvation and wrapped me in a robe of righteousness as a groom wears a turban and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. So why does he rejoice? Why do they rejoice, the restored people? Because they are clothed with what? With God's righteousness, with God's salvation. Now, whether the past or future tense for Isaiah, as Christians today, are we not now clothed with the righteousness of God? With the righteousness of Christ? 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. It's not our righteousness. It's an alien righteousness that is credited to us, according to Romans 5, just like Adam's sin was credited to us, and that's why we're damned. In Christ, his righteousness is credited or counted to us by faith alone, and in that, we are saved. We're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That means that God accepts you right now. When God looks at you, he looks at you as if he's looking at Jesus. Right now, you are fully, completely righteous without any unrighteousness in your status at all. Your status is complete righteousness right now if you're a Christian. That is your status. That's your clothing. Clothing represented your status and your mood. So people wore ashes because not only was it their status of, of sinning or grieving, but it was their mood of grieving and mourning. So if you're clothed in righteousness, it's not just to say, I'm a Christian, that's your status, but it does reflect a mood. Rejoicing greatly in God, exulting in our Savior, that he would clothe unrighteous you and unrighteous me with the righteousness of Christ. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. It says later in that same song, when he shall come with trumpet sound, Oh, may I then in him be found dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ, the solid rock we stand. On Christ, in Christ, the solid rock, we have our righteousness. We're dressed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, rejoice in your salvation. You are in the middle of your sin, in the middle of your guilt, in the middle of your ups and downs. You are righteous in Christ. Dressed in that way for your status and your mood as joyful. That should help you with your purpose of being a priest in this world. Second reason for joy, before we close here, is verse 11. For as the earth produces its growth and as a garden enables what is sown to spring up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all Gentiles, all the nations. I love this. Not only, does, not only do we have the status of righteousness, God is causing righteousness to grow in our lives. So your, your status is righteous, but um, are we growing in righteousness? Are you growing in your Christian life? Who's, who's causing that righteousness to spring up in you? Who's causing that? According to this passage, God is, right? So here's two ways I want you guys to rejoice besides your status. God is causing righteousness to spring up in you more and more in your life. Are you thankful for that? That you're growing and it's not because of you. It's not because of BBC ultimately. It's not because of your Bible discipline. Ultimately, you are growing because God is causing you. He's causing righteousness to spring up in you. I love that. That God will cause you to grow. Not only that, there's one other thing that just gets even sweeter than that. When God is causing righteousness to spring up and praise to spring up from all the nations, it's not just people who are already righteous, declare righteous growing. There are people who are not saved. And guess what? God's going to save more people. Praise God. 2020, 2021, if Christ doesn't come, 2022, in Bellflower, in Southeast LA County, God is going to cause righteousness to spring up. I am so burdened right now for my, my neighbors here on Nichols Street. And I get discouraged. And actually, even right now, before I started preaching this, this verse right now, even here in the middle of the sermon, I was discouraged thinking, they're not going to get saved. It's so hard. But what does this passage say? God will cause righteousness and praise, praise of Yahweh, praise of Jesus, to spring up from the Gentiles. Do you have non-Christian neighbors and family members and friends? Do you believe that God is going to cause 
righteousness and praise to spring up from some of them? Will he do it? Yes or no? What does the text say? He's going to do it, right? And if he's going to do it, what's the response for us? Rejoice greatly. Praise God that it's not ultimately up to us for our own growth or for the gospel to spread in Bellflower or among the unreached ethnic people groups of the world, among the missionaries that we pray for and support and love. What does it look like to rejoice greatly and exult in your life? Let me think about the joy killers in my life. One of the greatest joy killers of my life last, last year, 2019, the hardest, maybe the lowest point in my life last year, 2019, was when I was seriously threatened with the thought that one of my children might lose their walking for the rest of their life. And it was a very real possibility at the time that they might not walk, that, that child might not walk again. I was, and then I, I started feeling guilty because I started thinking about all the things I should have and could have done differently that would have made this circumstance not happen. And I was, I hit a real low point. I remember calling Ben Bratcher just weeping to him about the guilt that I felt about things I could have and should have done differently that I did not do. Then the child started to wobble and walk and slowly, and even though the doctors still don't know what happened, she's walking. And I was so grateful. Like, like the, that low point, that when, when, I, when I received that joy of, of, of her being able to walk, man, everything else paled in comparison. I mean, even as I feel burdens right now, like, oh man, I got to finish a theological paper for my doctorate degree. And I feel like, what if I don't? What if I don't make it? If my child is walking, I don't care if I don't make it. Like, if I had to choose between finishing the degree and my child walking, I'm going to choose my child walking. Like, the joy, the great joy in that outweighs the burden of whatever I'm going through. And, and that's, that's the point here. It's, like, it's not to say you don't have burdens, but does the, does the fact that God has made, made your status righteous and that he's causing righteousness to spring up and praise to spring up, does that overwhelm your joy killers? What are your joy killers? I'll tell you my two joy killers right now, pressure and guilt. I feel pressure because before I go on vacation, I have to kind of tie up all these loose ends for the church. And I feel pressure because I have a paper due on August 1st. And so I'm gonna have to work on it during my vacation but at least no church work and stuff like that. But I'm gonna have to work and I feel pressure and it's killing my joy a little bit. I feel, at least there's pressure there. Another thing that's killing my joy is guilt. I've been feeling guilty lately because it is legitimate guilt over sin of not faithfully calling the members who are disconnected. I've called some, but not as much as I, as I should have and need to and I'm obligated to and privileged to as a pastor. And so I've been living with this low level guilt for the last three or four weeks of just not calling all of the members that I need to call and should have called in the last three to four weeks. And that's killing my joy. And, and so here's what I want to say. Um, when we're clothed in Christ's righteousness, we can know that our status is okay with God, right? And if I know God is raising up and causing righteousness to spring up in me, then I can repent. I can ask God for forgiveness. I can get cleansing and I can get back to it after two weeks of vacation and start calling people again and feel, and just move on, right? To do our best and move on. You will have trouble in this life. I don't know what your joy killers are. What are your joy killers? Whatever they are, I don't want to minimize them, but I want to maximize the fact that you are clothed in Christ's righteousness and that righteousness and praise is going to spring up from God's people and from, from people who are not yet God's people. And this restoration hope is coming. And so whatever you're burdened with, without minimizing that, I want to maximize the eternal infinite joy of the restoration hope. So brothers and sisters, rejoice greatly that God gives us restoration hope. Take the Lord's Supper today, tonight, as we remember the Lord's, and, and let's, let's proclaim the Lord's death until he what? Until he comes. Restoration hope. Let's celebrate the Lord's Supper meaningfully. Let's sing thoughtfully. 
Let's hear God's words prayerfully. Let's see the restoration hope in the faces. When you look at other members, I see right here as I'm looking and as we're gonna be looking at the screen, I see faces that show me restoration hope. I see right here, sinners in front of me who have been clothed in Christ's righteousness. You know what you guys are evidences of? Restoration hope. When you look at me, you're looking at a sinner who's been restored by God and is living in restoration hope. So see restoration hope in your face when you just look around at other Christians, especially your own church family. When you pray, for, when you pray through the directory and you pray for them name by name through the directories, you get Calvin's emails. You're, you're praying for each person who's an evidence of restoration hope. If you're not a Christian, God offers you this hope in Jesus Christ. God will save you. God will change you. God will satisfy you with his majestic goodness if you come to Jesus. So to close, hear the proclamation of hope, experience restoration hope, and rejoice greatly in restoration hope. This is our call. This is our privilege. And it's also our failure because we have not heard the proclamation hope with joy as we ought to. We don't experience the blessing with joy. We don't mediate the blessing faithfully. We're too easily um, derailed by our own convenience. At least I am by my own convenience and distraction. And I don't rejoice in my restoration hope. I complain in my heart about my burdens and my difficulties. And so I deserve not restoration hope, but I deserve damnation and that the day of God's vengeance. And yet there is one person who did live that way, right? Christ Jesus heard God. He listened to God's word of proclamation. He perfectly proclaimed it. He mediated God's light through his life and through his love. He healed and blessed others. Jesus rejoiced greatly in God. Jesus never wavered from God's promise of hope. And yet God treated Jesus on the cross as if he rejected the prophetic hope. God treated Jesus as if he refused to mediate God's blessings to others, but rather to live for his own selfish comfort and convenience. God treated Jesus like he rejoiced in idols and other good things, building his identity, his purpose, his life meaning on other things besides God. God punished Jesus on the cross where he was cut off from his people. Instead of restoration hope, he had the day of vengeance. He was exiled. He was punished. He was condemned. And then God raised him from the dead. And now he, 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 in, in rising from the dead, he has given us resurrection hope. And so we sing, we sang, what a foretaste of deliverance. How unwavering our hope. Christ in power resurrected as we will be when he comes. This is our hope and it's rock solid, it's coming. So let us rejoice greatly in the hope of restoration secured by Christ. If we don't, we won't meditate on God's blessing and we won't live with joyful sacrifice in our purpose, our meaning, in being who we are. We'll risk it all, but if we do rejoice greatly, we'll risk everything in loving our neighbors, in loving our church members, and God himself, and loving God himself, will have this boundless, infinite joy that really takes hold of the purpose in our lives, even in suffering, even in taking up your cross. So brothers and sisters, enjoy Christ greatly, whether you're a pastor or whether you're a team doctor for the Los Angeles Lakers or whatever situation God puts you in. It doesn't matter what job you have. It matters that you are a priest of the Most High, in the job and situation God has put you in. So let's joyfully live out our priesthood in restoration hope. Father, take these words, hide them in our hearts that we would not sin against you. Give us restoration hope and joy. 
In Jesus' name, amen.